You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. In this episode, we sit down with two veterans of the digital asset space and talk DeFi and much more. These are areas that are growing in popularity and investors of all stripes are really digging into them, just as we do here on this podcast. We hope you like it. Welcome everybody. This is James Barron with CASA and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we're talking with DeFi Technologies. We have Russell Starr representing there and Penrose Partners. We have Sean Stapley. And we're going to be talking about digital assets, uh, smart contracts, and everything within the, within that realm. Let's start with uh, self-introductions. We'll start with you, Russell. Uh, what's happening at DeFi Technologies these days? Yeah, look, um, my background is is basically traditional finance. Um, I met this company, um, honestly, as an investor. And, you know, my view is that that the future of capital markets will be, will be dominated and permeated um, by Web 3.0. And uh, why I loved DeFi and, and, and ultimately joined and became chairman and, uh, and CEO was, you know, we, we take a really simple stance. Um, our, our two co-founders, one of them created CoinShares, um, Johan Wattenstrom, and, you know, everybody's familiar with CoinShares, largest uh, Bitcoin ETF in the world. Um, and then uh, our other founder created Hive Blockchain and, and using the same concept of, of you know, how do you get uh, people exposure to Ethereum or Bitcoin, but do so on traditional regulated capital markets. We launch ETPs in Europe um, that give investors the ability to invest in, you know, Solana, uh, Polkadot, Cardano, Avalanche, um, Terra. Um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, t- just today, actually, we co-launched uh, a metaverse and gaming ETP with Siba Bank, which we own 6% of. So we're sort of taking the perspective that 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 for this ecosystem to grow and, and become what it ultimately uh, will be. And I, I think people are going to be shocked when I say things like this is growing two times faster than the Internet. But but ultimately, how everyone will get exposure to this space is is, in my opinion, through the traditional equity markets through ETF and ETP structures, um, just like what we're creating. And, and so that's kind of the background. Um, you know, I, I often joke, I love the company so much. I just started buying as much of it as possible. And and here I am now <laughs> running it. Very good. Well, that's wild. Hey, you, you, uh, you mentioned about the term web 3.0 or web three. What's, uh, how would you define that? It's probably a good, a good baseline well, for folks that are not deep into it. it yeah, so everyone, I think, still even uh, when someone mentions DeFi or crypto, um, they all automatically just think Ethereum and Bitcoin. Um, it's it's really quite shocking how few people recognize um, that there's there's two other very very meaningful ecosystems out there. Which which you know when I when I say them, people are going to be like, oh, now I get it. Um, so you've got gaming. Uh, which mm-hmm. everybody is familiar with. And then you also have the metaverse, which which is also now becoming sort of a, I don't want to call it a household term, but but people are starting to really get intrigued by and starting to invest in the metaverse. 
Um, and so mm-hmm. Web 3.0 is sort of the combination of, of all of it. And so, you know, we're not just launching ETPs on Bitcoin and we're not just launching ETPs on Ethereum. We're launching them on on everything and anything um, that's within the top 125 protocols. So you get lending platforms, you get gaming platforms, you get metaverse platforms, and we're launching and creating ETPs so that people can get exposure to those on traditional um, capital market regulated, cleared by prospectus, like all those catchwords that you see hear the SEC talking about, mm-hmm. we're already do- we're already doing. And so that's that's the easy way of explaining Web 3.0. Wow, that's wild. Because yeah, that's yeah. the. I mean, for me at least, like I, I had some Bitcoin back way back. It was about four hundred fifty bucks. Probably lost my password. So you know, that's <laughs> that's money that's gone. So when people yeah. talk about that fifteen to twenty percent, that's that's uh, not accessible. That's someone that's mine. Um, but then when they came out with the ETFs and the and the funds, it was like, okay, this is great. I can throw my RSP and goes to my wife or kids. You know, but what if you if you die without a password going on to somebody like? like the quadruple guys, you know, like then what, right? Then, um, so it's nice to have that little package that it's all part of your traditional finance system where you don't really have to worry about it. So that's, that's very cool, man. Very cool. Yeah. Thank you. And Sean, how about, uh, Penrose? You know, we've known, uh, your colleague Karem for, for quite a while for working with him and he's, uh, amazing on, on a lot of topics. So let's hear your, your take on, um, on this and then what's happening uh, at your shop now. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so Krim, as you guys have had Krim on a few times, um, we've been running Penrose Partners for about three, three and a bit years now. Um, for us, you know, in a, in a nutshell, we're an emerging tech advisory group, which we've been focused mostly on finding and sourcing innovative companies across the blockchain space, much more so now in the Web3 era. You know, we're looking at figuring out from an infrastructure perspective, what needs to be there to enable the next generation of companies to build on this space. And that's really where, when we look at this, you know, I think the things we need to highlight are that, you know, much as you literally just said, um, you know, people lose their keys, right? Mm-hmm. And part of that is that, you know, digital asset custody is something that I don't think has really been finalized in, into a fully insured module at this point. Um, but even when we're looking more so at other aspects of the space, you know, there's other discussions around where things like privacy and identity are going to intertwine. And I think that's really the interesting part for a lot of where we're going into is, you know, the questions that come up now is like things of central bank digital currencies, but what if the world switches to, you know, Monero? Things like this are where we're trying to figure out from a research perspective, what happens next? Um, so we do a lot of work across the space as well in um, in Bermuda. I'm actually calling in today from, uh, I wish you guys were on video, could show you the beautiful sunshine I have over here. Um, but we've been doing a lot of work with the Bermuda government, um, with some of the incubators on island, and also with some of the digital asset businesses that are registered here. Um, you know, Bermuda really has strung out to us as a, as a way to to stand out in a global, more or less battlefield for where they're trying to entice companies in this new era to set themselves up. And, you know, with Bermuda in particular, and we can chat a little bit on the regulatory side as we as we chatted before this call, um, you know, Bermuda wants to be that premier blockchain jurisdiction. Uh, for us, it's, you know, we've been able to easily work with the regulators uh, to show them what our clients are building, to have conversations about how can we innovate and not necessarily stifle this new generation of builders. Mm-hmm. And really, to that extent, you know, the, the government's been hugely supportive of this. And there is a fantastic community, both from the traditional realm of international business and from insurance, um, but also a lot of digital nomads that are coming to get involved here. So overall, we've been uh, we've been excited to, to work across the space and meet some innovative companies and uh, happy to chat a little bit more across all of them now. 
Love it. Hey, on the venture side in like the digital asset space, what? How do you guys look at? Because I know there were these the ICOs a few years ago, and but most people are 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 pretty um, pretty comfortable with like just VC buying fund or buying fund companies either equity or converts or stuff like that, uh, like you know, usual stuff. Um, how are people financing their their crypto or digital ventures? Is it with the traditional kind of structures that they're selling to investors, or are they saying, "Hey, uh, I've got this token"? Uh, what, what are you seeing, like in the in that in that area? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think we've we've seen a bit of a mix, to be honest with you. I think we've we've seen companies that are doing kind of a traditional equity round, or maybe potentially even debt earlier on, in order to finance a pre-seed or seed, whichever you'd like to call it. And once they reach a little bit more of the Series A, they go out to more of the crypto-native investors as well, and then pursue potentially doing things, something along the lines of looking at you know maybe doing a tokenized round or something in the future. So I think it's it's a bit of a merger, really. And I think, you know, we spend a lot of time with venture capital firms that are looking to get involved and help educate them on just what that means. And on our end, um, I would add, uh, you know, it, the market is 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 what I call right now perverted. And I don't mean that in the, in the bad sense of, of <laughs> uh, disgusting. What I mean is um, you're seeing uh, just immense amount of, of private capital flowing into protocols, flowing into banks. But in the public markets, you're actually seeing a complete um, misallocation or underappreciation or, or, or literally um, just, just, uh, just a, you know, a, a free fall in, in, in all of these companies. Um, so it's, it's, it's weird because you're getting, um, for example, our number one competitor is raising money at one times AUM and we're trading at 0.5 times what? AUM publicly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, our investment in SIBA Bank, they just got a $2 billion injection from the largest private Liechtenstein bank. So, so basically tripled or a little bit more of their assets, which of course, um, theoretically triples the value of our investment in SIBA Bank. And if you actually just do that math, um, almost in, almost fifty percent of our entire market cap is backed by our ownership in Siba, um, meaning we're even trading at a bigger discount than what I just described. And 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 yet, you know, investors um, either don't care, or or maybe it's just like a massive unwinding of margin uh, globally in the public markets as as the U.S. continues on um, their merry way of of kind of destroying everything that makes sense economically. Ever. <laughs> so it's it's a really weird market right now. Well, well, let's uh, let's maybe take a veer down that path of things going going pear shaped. So, so NFTs, are you guys in that market? And because we're seeing like I think it was the first Twitter one was two something million and they went for two hundred and seventy seven bucks. So they had an offering. What's happening there? And how, how I, I, I know some guys that have it as part of their like an AI NFT gaming app and stuff like that. Like how, where, how do NFT um fit into all this and, and, and how do they make sense? Um, it, you know, honestly, with the, the NFT kind of craze, I think is a little bit similar in a lot of ways to what we saw in the ICO realm. Um, right now, mm -hmm. there's a huge amount of hype. There's a huge amount of promise. Um, everyone and their mother has a, has a token back in the day. Now it's everyone and their mother has an NFT. And I think the, I mean, even the definition of non-fungible token is something that, I don't think people really understand is, is quite simple. It's a digital collectible. It's something unique. 
um, you know, things like owning, for example, you know, you guys owning CASA's uh, URL, that is something which is just going to be a unique identifier, which in the oh. future, it's likely on something like Ethereum name service, you'll just be able to own CASA.eth, for example. Um, you know, I think when people talk about NFTs, they are, everyone always laughs about people trading JPEGs. But the, the potential really of this is that in the future, you're not going to call them NFTs. It'll just be, you know, us trading things like deeds to our houses is just going to be represented as an NFT on chain. Um, and much uh-huh. as you guys were saying earlier, you know, a lot of the traditional market, as Russell mentioned, is shifting into the space of saying, what if we just digitize everything? We, you know, we saw in the early days NASDAQ doing this with uh, their efforts towards Link and just essentially trying to say, you know, what if we made traditional markets more effective? Um, it's much the same way that, you know, when we talk about a lot of the blockchain innovations, people have in their mind that, uh, you know, it's, it's all a bunch of DeFi DGENs just trying to roll their dice in the casino. When in reality, <laughs> a lot of where we've seen some, some interest in traditional markets is that, you know, with traditional insurers, for example, there is something absurd in terms of 40%, I think, of the premium is paid out to cost inefficiencies before it's even covering any sort of, of collateral. And when you look at that, you say, well, you know, what, what could we do? You can put most insurance contracts very simply on a smart contract platform and be able to really digitize the system. Um, you know, Lloyd's is a, a horrendously overcomplicated thing that's, that's been around for a long time. And that's where I think we're seeing a lot of innovation. There's, there's a company based out of Bermuda called Names um, that we know quite well, who frankly have just Im- impressed with just saying, we're just going to take traditional markets, simplify everything, and then allow for an open, transparent marketplace using this technology. So when we look at, you know, things like the, the NFTs, very simply, that's, you know, traditional financial instruments could very well all repre- be represented as NFTs. But I think that the part that people get more excited about now really is that NFTs really can, can just be this digital collectible that can be recognized as unique. And that could be things as well, like having artists releasing NFTs, you know, having this kind of backstage access that allows for you to get early access to their music, uh, to show that as a proof of, you know, being able to get concert tickets, things mm-hmm. like that, instead of it just being this idea of, uh, you know, trading, trading JPEGs or whatever we want to talk about, I do think there's a, there's a lot of, you know, looking at things like the Board 8 Yacht Club and obviously CryptoPunks, those ones pave the way to show that we can have unique digital collectibles on here and this whole idea of digital scarcity. But furthermore than that, now we get to see the next wave of innovation of people saying, okay, what if we combine this with the traditional world, either things like artists coming into the space or with, you know, traditional financial firms, just using NFTs as a way to digitize their existing contracts. So I think that, you know, when people talk about the NFT craze, it's very similar to a couple of years ago, of you know, the ICO boom of everyone trying to jump on the next 100x token. Now it's, you know, we'll have a little bit of hype. It will die down and may, may be dying already, <laughs> given what my portfolio looks like today. But, you know, when we look <laughs> at what comes next, now, now is the time for the builders. Now is the time for firms to go out there and say, you know, we're not here for the price action. We're here to build something that will last for five, 10 years and, and onwards. Very cool. Well, Lloyd's at a disadvantage here, 336 years old, and a lot of these things are 336 days old. So, <laughs> so that's fair. I'll, I'll try not to pick on too many incumbents. Somewhere. I, and really, that's that's where, you know, that's where Penrose has really, has really fit in, to be honest with you guys. We've we found that we're able to be those those translators between the, the builders of tomorrow and those that are out there exploring and building these innovative solutions. And then to break it down for traditional firms to say, you know, why should you care? And I think that's where so many companies across the space are missing two major things in, at least in the blockchain industry, 
Number one, they don't put forward their value proposition well. Mm-hmm. They don't say why people should care. And secondly, everyone needs to get better UI UX. The crypto spaces is not a user-friendly experience for the most part. And I think that's that's changing a lot these days. But those are definitely the two areas I would say that we need to focus on as an industry. Yeah, that's one of the things when uh, I've got a panel coming up, actually, I'm doing and it's, it's a Web3 panel. And my question is always like, OK, that's great. But how does this stuff, how does this help investors? How, how do people make money at this or how does it help the world sort of thing? And uh, how about like something that's really basic that everybody has in their wallet, like cash, um, which is... Um, you know, it's the CBDCs, the central bank digital digital currencies. Uh, what, what do you guys think of those? Because there's like something like 80 countries are are, are putting them out. Um, you know, Snowden really thinks that they're a great way for governments to control everything and know where every dollar's been, never mind where it is. Uh, but where, where are you guys on that uh, in the, the digital assets realm? Um, so I think uh, central bank digital currencies really are, are one of these interesting areas that we're recognizing now is governments across the world trying to say, you know, how can we take advantage of this innovation? How can we streamline our financial system? And how can it give us a little bit better control over what's going on? Um, you know, when we look mm. at examples like the, the Fed, for example, um, uh, you know, I'll have to fact check the statistic afterwards, but it's some absurd percentage of all the dollars in existence were printed in the last, you know, 24 months. I think it's close to 70, 80% of every dollar that was, has ever been printed. Yeah, they printed more this year, this last year, than ever in the history of um, of, of the U.S. economic existence. And that's really where, you know, when everyone, you know, I, I used to, to very much nerd out and I, you know, I did economics in, in university. I went pretty much far down that rabbit hole. And, you know, a lot of the the, the MM monetary theory and all this just basically says this is this is not exactly something you can keep doing forever. And really, you know, I think this is the part we're now getting to when we see massive inflation surging. I think the it's you know we've seen obviously people trying to blame things on supply chain shocks and the war in Ukraine. And it's I, frankly, you know, we're we're obviously we've seen this coming for a long time. And so when you look at central bank digital currencies, this I think is an interesting area in because of two reasons. Number one is the control that it gives, um, you know, something like a Fed being able to more easily manipulate the market to provide, you know, its basic requirements of stability and a functioning market. Um, but number two is obviously trying to figure out how does that work in an era of needing to have, you know, some individual privacy. It's been, you know, almost 30 years since Eric Hughes in the original Cypherpunk Manifesto talking about privacy as as a human right and i think that's where a lot of people look at central bank digital currencies and they get concerned that given how things have been held thus far across across governments globally across numerous firms that have been hacked and and had their systems broken um you know what if money now is represented as this this asset which the government has complete and utter control over you know when we look at the western world that might be an, an okay situation where you can start to see you know a little bit more transparency allows for the Fed to have greater control and to be able to actually impact as they want to potentially curb inflation or to you know help employment rise. But there is a slippery slope there of if we have you know potentially authoritarian governments around the world having complete control over their currency through central bank digital currencies. Mm-hmm. You know, what's to say that there couldn't be ways in which you know certain populations could be cut out of the financial system and in a cashless society they have no other recourse. And so I think there's there's things like that to consider that we've already seen, you know, Circle and others, um, the 
group behind USDC had had flagged, for example, certain wallets that had been tracked back to uh, you know bad actors, and the accounts are frozen, right? And so that's obviously you know of, they are doing this in the in the right mindset. But when you have you know we've all we've all had our bank accounts uh, you know have something come pops up and all of a sudden I can't use my credit card when I'm stuck overseas, and you have to try to explain mm-hmm. that to you know some some customer service agent while you desperately need your money and. That obviously doesn't leave you with much recourse. And I think that's where the resurgence of this idea that a central bank digital currency is going to come up will push a lot more people into understanding that there is there is a, a, a fundamental issue of having the ability to have all of your money frozen, even if you're just trying to go about your day-to-day lives. And I think that's one of the things that will, will, pro- will push people a lot more towards these privacy-centric coins. And I think that'll be an interesting area in the coming years is what level are people okay with for having transparency while ensuring that they still have a fundamental right to their own assets? So that's a little bit off, almost a little bit off topic, but I think that's where like central bank digital currencies seem pretty much inevitable at this point, be it from a government-driven mm. perspective or by partnering with private institutions like Circle and, the, and um, you know, various other stablecoin providers. But I think there will be quite a bit of pushback in years to come from those, particularly in the crypto space, but also for those that might just have a little bit more of an understanding that we deserve privacy at a fundamental level. Yeah, so I, I, I agree completely with Sean. It's, it's ironic. We both have economics backgrounds. I have a master's and started my PhD um, in, in econometrics. And the reality is the governments have, have already shown their true colors um, and, and you know, giving them the ability to do it through, a, through their own controlled digital currency isn't going to change anything. The whole premise and 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 concept behind why this ecosystem is growing is is because of how how terribly and poorly central banks have have managed or mismanaged um, economic growth. Um, you know the actual definition mm-hmm. of inflation is 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 you know textbook wise is is the creation of M one. So if you look at at the U S, um, it 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 absolutely shocks me when I hear them say stuff like, well, it's the Ukraine or it's transitory. This, for anyone who's taken even, you know, first year economics, the writing was on the wall, um, you know, years ago. This this is a failed monetary experiment and giving them the ability, giving governments the ability to do it again with, with a central bank digital currency, it's just rinse, repeat and, and, and recycle exactly the same problem. The solution lies in, um, exactly what Sean was describing, and that is that is using um, the current ecosystem as it should be, um, you know, sort of a sort sort of a purist view, um, and, and forcing mm-hmm. these governments to actually be responsible for their their creative, um, um, juvenile, um, misconceived. I mean, I can go on with all sorts of negative um, <laughs> negative neg- negative descriptors. Uh, but, but I mean, this is, this is a failed experiment and, and, and the irony is just, just, you know, no one is taking ownership for, for what is so obviously bad decision-making and the, and the funnier part about what's going on is, you know, all they're trying to do is push the long end of the curve, um, as high as possible, um, by job owning interest rates. Uh, but the single biggest debtor in the world is the U S. And so as, as interest rates go higher, you're just effectively pushing the U S into a, a more and more and more obvious recession. And at, at which point they're going to have to once again, start reducing interest rates. And so it's, 
they've created their own vicious cycle and the solution is right in front of us. And it, and it, and it's this, this ecosystem that's, that's like I said, growing two times faster than the internet. And, and, you know, I, I, I think that the minute people start thinking from the, for themselves and, and instead of, you know, I, I call it the Kardashianism of, of American politics, where, where you, you basically just believe whatever, whatever someone tells you. Um, but if people can actually start thinking mm-hmm. for themselves and, and, and it's, it's being forced on them, right? Like, like, you know, gas prices are going to the moon, food prices are going to the moon. Um, once people start realizing that, that this is the direct consequence of economic policies that, that are, are, you know, um, baffling to, to almost anyone, um, you're, you're, you'll see people basically just not even, not even trust to the central bank digital currencies. They'll, they'll, they'll stick with Bitcoin, Ethereum. Solana, um, yeah, stuff that has a a maximum number of coins, or or they're burning yep. or something like that. Because yeah, my 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 prof Herbert, Herbert Grubel, he was one of the hundred most famous economists in the world, but he was hated because he was a classical school guy. Yep, and he's um, his license plate was MVPQ. So the amount of money times the velocity is the price price yep. of goods times the, times the amount of goods. So if you start increasing that M one or M two or whatever measure it is, then you're going to have inflation and um, yep. it'll, and here the we problem are. though is with the U S is that the, with the Triffin dilemma is that they, they're the reserve currency, you know, since, since like 44. So they, like they, they can, they can, they can, they can go longer and longer. They get a ton more rope than anybody else ever would. Yeah. But there's cracks even in that foundation, right? Like if you look at what uh, the Chinese have done with the petrol yuan, if you look at what Saudi Arabia is doing with oil deliveries in rubles, um, Mm. You know, that, that, that whole um, stream of thought or, or call it economic viewpoint is, is, is slowly crumbling as well. And, you know, the petrol lawn is, is nothing new. It was, I think, created two or three years ago, but, but it's, it's just hilarious. If you try to Google that in the U.S., you'll get almost no information. Mm-hmm. Um, you leave the U.S. and you Google it and you get just, you know, hundreds of articles. Um, and so again, it just comes down to sort of this censorship of, of, of thinking. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I've, my lawyers have, have told me to, to be gentle and quiet and nice to the SEC, but the reality is, um, the SEC is, 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 has become just a political tool for the U S government now to try to hinder or squander or, or, or sort of suppress this, this whole industry as well. Um, and you and I were talking about this before, you know, DeFi has become a bad word. Well, why is it a bad word? It's a bad word because you can generate yield from a lot of these protocols. And why is that bad? Well, it's not bad. It, it's actually competitive and it's generating opportunities that U.S. Fi- fixed income markets can't. Um, and so there's, there's a huge political cloud that overhangs this entire uh, opportunity um, that I just am, am baffled by because it's almost like, you know, going back in time and, and, and saying, I'm sorry, we don't like the idea of you being able to shop on Amazon. So we're just, we're just going to stop that. Um, and that's kind of what they're doing right now, or at least trying to do with crypto. But, but, but thankfully we're in more of a global economy now and, and, and the speed at which information can actually, um, the speed at which information can actually be translated is, is so much, um, more seamless that you can actually, you know, buy buy a Solana ETP in Europe, what while the U.S. government, you know, disallows any opportunities like this in the U.S. So it's it's a really crazy um, 
world that we're living in right now, just in terms of, you know, what's the solution to all of these financial problems? Well, it's, it's, it's commodities and, and, and web 3.0 or crypto. Um, yeah. And, but at the same time, you've got this government trying to do everything they can to stop it or hinder it. And it, it just, it's baffling because in, in my mind, and, you know, I love Sean's opinion on this, um, you know, the, what, what the U.S. built itself upon is innovation and, and risk and change. And it's almost, it, it almost stands for the exact opposite right now. And, and that just, just is, is crazy. I just, it, it's, it's hard for me to comprehend. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to jump in on not appreciate, I agreed pretty much across the board with, with everything Russell said, I think, you know, especially when we look at things like the banking sector and the innovation there, you know, working with, with banks in the States and Canada has just been some of the most frustrating experiences ever. Things like we've sent wire payments uh, to, to vendors of ours or receiving money from clients and it will just go missing for weeks at a time. So that's the first part. And then, you know, secondly, when we look at even the interest rates that are involved, I still get targeted saying, you know, we'd love for you as a valued customer to receive 0.78% on your savings account. And I, I, it just feels like they're they're completely out of touch with the innovation. Yep. That- per month? They mean that per month, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish. Yeah. I wish. Yeah. And, you know, I look at like even the stuff that I have sitting across a variety of, of assets in the space, you know, the, I think the lowest yield generation that I have right now is sitting at like eight and a half percent and that's paid out daily. And so, you know, even just the innovation of not having to wait weeks or months for it, that's where things are, you know, coming a lot quicker. You know, there's even things like, you know, the technology that, that this enables, there's no reason, for example, that people need to do, you know, receive paychecks every two weeks. You know, that's the, the only reason that the payday loan industry has jumped up is because of that, is that you were working for X amount of time and it's withheld until a certain period. Things like that could completely revolutionize. You complete your, your work for the day and you're paid instantaneously. You know, advantages like this are just some of the, the ways that we're seeing it grow. But again, you know, as Russell said, part of it, it seems it's a little crazy to me that we are seeing such a push away from the States, uh, despite the fact that it was meant to be this, this hub of innovation. And, you know, obviously from a perspective of, of working in Bermuda, there's a huge advantage for, for Bermuda to, to be able to really be that, that blockchain jurisdiction. But we're seeing that across the, across the globe, really. You know, we've, we've seen firms that are looking to set up um, Switzerland and obviously the Crypto Valley has been, has been huge. And I think there's, there's a few mm-hmm. areas that are really going to try and segment themselves as, or excuse me, cement themselves as this is the place to go for crypto. And this is where we'll be, we'll be growing. And, you know, you have Miami doing a lot of this now, obviously, Mara Suarez, I think has done a, a very good job of marketing this. And now we're getting to a stage as well, where, especially in the era, you know, COVID just accelerated the ability to work from anywhere in the world. People are now used to the idea that working from home is, is the standard, you know, we've been doing it at Penrose for, well, Karem and I met at a previous firm and we've been working remote for about five, six years now. And productivity goes up. It's, you know, the count counterintuitive, right? Like, like productivity is, has spiked with people working from home. And yet you, you'd still have the likes of JP Morgan and Goldman and who a Royal Bank or whomever who just, you know, you've got these small little, uh, I, I, I joke it's, you know, the, the, these managers who, who work 20 hour days and they just, they just want to force everyone else to work the same crazy, horrible lifestyle they work to get to where they were. Um, despite the fact that, um, you know, working from home is, is far more productive and employees like it more and, and they do more for their companies. It's crazy. 
absolutely. Yeah. And and really, the you know the other the other advantage that we've seen at least in the last few years as well is that this this growing this growing area of this this idea of being a fully digital nomad. Um, I do think there there's a little bit of, of there's a bit of fear around it, right? People obviously get a little bit of concern around. Well, okay, but like, where do I pay my taxes? Where where do I keep my money? Is do I have to just carry around you know a hardware wallet and things like this? And I think that's one of the the key pieces that potentially people have been scared away from DeFi because of because they're not recognizing. And frankly, it's it's an education problem. We need to we need to educate mass adoption, saying you know there are services that can that can help you find the level of risk that you're comfortable with. You know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend to to every investor to do what I do because I've been in the space for a while. I'm comfortable with a lot of these protocols. Whereas mm-hmm. you know, someone that's that's just getting involved, you might more recommend them towards something like you know you having a USDC yield account, or I, I suppose not them, since I think Gary Gensler took took that one out. But you know, we we were partners in Bermuda, where I think it's up to about a hundred thousand dollars of stablecoin deposited. You can have for you know, you receive twelve percent annual yield paid out weekly. You know, this sort of thing just is exactly where we start showing the potential of this, and then people get a little bit more comfortable. They start looking into you know things like Terra and the Anchor Protocol, and you get twenty percent. And now Near is doing similar aspects. And, and you know, obviously, this is a little bit of a race of, of collateralization for each of these protocols trying to get as many people to building on them as possible. But part of that is also the fact that I do think we're going to very much end up in in a multi-chain world. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely not looking for, you know, it's going to be, I mean, maybe I'll annoy a lot of ETH maximalists here, but I don't think it'll it'll be only ETH. I don't think it'll only be Solana or, or Near or Algorand. I think each of them are going to find a niche that, that they really persist in. And from there, either way, because of the fact that, you know, each of these layer one smart contracts, base, the, the protocols themselves basically exist as an app store. Whichever one has the best selection for people is where pe- the people will go. And because of the fact that you don't have lock-in periods or you have to go through complicated bank setups, people can jump much more easily. So, you know, I think we're, we're going to have a lot more of an idea of an open multi-chain world gives the best options possible for the people. And I think that's where, you know, we're, that's where regulation should be focused is making sure that, you know, fraudulent apps, the DeFi spaces is, you know, verified and validated, proper auditing procedures are done. You know, things like this, I think, can bring a lot more legitimacy. We're still, you know, we still get emails every so often from wrecked news saying, you know, here's this other protocol that that was hacked because they kept, you know, their private keys stored in a text file and they sent it across Facebook. <laughs> there's there's always these ones where, you know, we, as we saw with, uh, with Sky Maven and, and the massive Ronin hack, you know, that was just because they had poor OPSEC. And at the end of the day, I think yep. these things are inevitable. There's going to be hacks. And I, I think it, I think it's good for the space for the stuff to break now while it's still relatively small. And once you start stress testing this, you have a bulletproof system that, you know, to shamelessly steal the phrase from uh, Nassim Taleb, it's anti-fragile. The more that it gets beaten down, the better it rises. And that's the, the real difference that we've seen, at least in, in the decentralized space, is that they welcome competition. They welcome new innovations. And they say, if you can do something better than us, do it and we'll work together. Whereas do we've it seen- and, let's, and then we'll borrow it and we'll share it. Exactly. And that's, and that's the thing, you know, the open source of this, the open sourceness of the space is one of the key aspects that will provide for DeFi as a, as a whole to really stand ahead of the traditional banking sector. And that's why we've also said to all these, these firms we do work with in the traditional space, this isn't you versus them. This is you having an opportunity to adopt mm-hmm. these technologies and to innovate and to come out ahead of your competition in the traditional space. 
Love it. Yeah, I think there's what was a sign in uh, Morgan Stanley does from Liars Poker. God gave you eyes, plagiarize. So, uh, but sharing sounds a lot better. You know, sharing things and <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And so, what you guys have both been in space for for a while. What has maybe changed over the last few years? Because we we did a, a actually a crypto venture panel a few months ago, a couple months ago, and they said that you know the pension plans. A year before that, if you talk about crypto, it was a career limiting move. Now, if you don't know about it, that's a career limiting move. So uh, what, what's what, what else may have changed in the last couple of years for you guys? And and how have um, participants and, and investors, how, how have their maybe their fears changed? Because before it was, we don't know what this stuff is. It looks volatile. And now it's like, maybe the volatility is good. Who knows? Uh, what, what have you seen maybe, uh, Russell? Well, look for us. It, it, it's interesting. Um, we've never. I, I mean, I mean, what's changed is is obviously we'd be theoretically in a bear market right now from a crypto perspective. I mean, that's that that always mm. makes everything a little bit harder. But um, the irony, uh, or the other way of looking at it, um, our, we we on a monthly basis track track our net incoming sort of people buying. Um, these ETPs, and we've never, ever had a down month. So even though the actual value of these underlying protocols um, to a large extent is going lower just because everybody views them, it, it, it's funny, everybody views this entire market as Bitcoin. And if Bitcoin sells off, then you typically get everything selling off. Yeah, it's, it's the Dow um, Jones of the of the crypto world, yeah. <laughs> which, which is baffling. Um, but, but, but even in that scenario, we've continued to, to have people buy more and more and more and more of these ETPs. So I think what you're seeing is, 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 and, and again, it's the analogy I always draw people back to is, you know, if, if you could go back to 1994 and, and you had 50 grand, what would you put it in? You know, Royal bank, Walmart or Amazon. And, and 100 times out of a hundred people will say Amazon. But mm -hmm. the reality is in 1994, a lot of people laughed at Amazon. They thought it was garbage. They never thought it would work. Um, even up to like a decade ago, um, people were shorting it. Um, and, and so like, like the evolution of the internet and the embracing of email, like, I, I don't know if you guys remember when everybody had a, had a Blackberry or sorry, not everybody, very few people had a Blackberry. Oh, yeah. And they scoffed oh, it's a Cadillac. It. Yeah. 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 And, and, and then, then now, yeah. and now you know, like not having some form of an Android or Apple or whatever phone is, 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 is almost impossible anywhere in the world. Um, and, and similarly in this space, um, you're seeing, you're seeing people starting to slowly understand it, doing a little bit more research. You know, you've got, got people like Sean who, who are, you know, helping people educate themselves on it. You know, we're doing it in a different way by giving people the ability to buy it on a traditional equity market. So you actually have KYC done on them and, and, and it's cleared by a prospectus. So you're providing a little bit more regulatory safety and it, and it, and it allows more people to do it. But in a broad general sense, I think you're just seeing the entire world get educated. And for the first time ever, you're actually seeing institutions who, who likely laughed at Bitcoin and Ethereum um, are now trying to figure out ways to get exposure to it. And, and the only way they're going to be able to do it is on traditional listed equity markets, but at, but at least they're looking at it. Um, and, and I think from that perspective, it's fascinating. And so that's, that's to me, the next big iteration is, you know, the 0.1% of the population who's already had exposure to this space, 
it, it, it's the 99.9 um, that are slowly going to gravitate towards it. Um, and, and, and if you can start converting one, two, three, four, five percent of the global population into equity holders or sorry, holders of these tokens through through traditional equity protocols, which is what mm -hmm. we're doing, um, all of the sudden this space, you, you know, it's not Bitcoin at 100,000, it's Bitcoin at 500,000. Um, and and well, that's what I find fascinating. Well, there's 100 million Satoshis in every uh, Bitcoin. So if it goes to 100 million, then you're at one per Bitcoin, which is a crazy number. But uh, yep. that's a very optimistic. Uh, I like it. I like it. We were kind of beating down <laughs> on people and now we've got something good. Sean, maybe this will be, uh, maybe we'll give you the last word here and we'll uh, we'll get on from here. Yeah, no, appreciate it. I think, uh, honestly, part of where as well, we've we've tried to make sure that over the years is that we don't just end up in these, just this idea of being a permable. I think long-term crypto, obviously, will win. I think it's going to be this open innovation is something that is globally distributed. People see the potential and now there's many, many people working on it. And additionally, it's becoming much more of a, you know, an actually capitalized space as we've seen with these incredible raises recently. I think one of the, the things that we do also make sure to, to recognize is that, you know, as a, as a space, we also do have to be aware of, of the risks that we ourselves are potentially walking into. And I don't mean from a regulatory perspective, but I think there's open conversations that should be had around things like, uh, you know, the wealth inequality, for example. People often talk about how, you know, it's the 1% owning this and, and there's a massive wealth transfer up to these. And while all of that is true, we then have to obviously be aware that, you know, Bitcoin has some fairly bad, in, in, excuse me, uh, equality across the board in terms of those that own it, right? And one of the, the longer standing theses that, that we've been discussing is that the idea that, well, you know, 50 years ago, we switched away from having gold standard and and you know after mm -hmm. 1971 we ended up in a situation where you know essentially these free floating rates led to the situation we have today but if you just said all right everyone goes back to the gold standard every government in the world buys bitcoin and then you hold it and we have a we have a global verifiable system that shows your reserves and thus your currency will be pegged to this that that might make sense but then all of a sudden you have people that own enough bitcoin that they're more powerful than the nation states. And that's where this idea of also having, you know, these individuals, as we've seen with, with Elon Musk and, and others, that, you know, this massive wealth can obviously lead to people being fairly disgruntled against those. So then there's the conversation around, well, well what happens next? Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's where, you know, people always ask us as well as, you know, we've been building the space for about six, seven years now. It's good Lord that flew by. And so a lot of it now is, is, is the why now question, right? And I think this is maybe a good thing to, to leave off on. But we've seen, obviously, number one, the acceleration of, of actual institutional adoption in the space. Family offices are getting involved. The hedge funds are in. You know, all of these firms, I'm sure that, that Russell spends plenty of time discussing, are, are now recognizing that crypto is a key component of actually having a proper portfolio. But the other aspect as well is that we're about to come up to absolutely historic generational wealth transfer. We're now coming out to the, the era where the baby boomers and such are passing down, you know, I think it's something like $70 trillion in, in wealth over the next few decades to millennials that are much more crypto savvy. And that's where a massive flow is going to come in. And then as we, we talked about, you know, this all happening in the background of obviously COVID accelerating the digital transformation and with massive money printing, we basically end up now in a situation where we've seen these incredible growth rates. And Really, the, the, last, the last key pieces that we need to focus on now are, number one, not stifling innovation by coming in too heavy with regulations, and number two, building that proper support for, for the future. And that's really where, you know, 
firms that we work with and, and a lot of our partners and Penrose in particular, we're, we're devoted to trying to find what are those infrastructure pieces that need to be fully solidified and that need to lay the groundwork for this next generation of digital assets. I think that's where, you know, again, we've focused heavily on, on custody, on the identity space, on privacy, on payments, and now more so figuring out what comes next. And I think that's where, you know, groups like CASA obviously are able to, to bring a lot of people to the table to have these conversations. And as much as, as everyone always, always harps on the idea of saying we're still early, um, we are. We are still very much in the early innings of the digital asset space. And I think now is the part where we have to get more people involved and more people educated about the potential of, of blockchain as a whole. Love it. So lots more podcasts and webinars coming up. Thanks a lot. Man. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. We should have you guys uh, again on another podcast again sometime. Anytime. So it's, been, it's been wild. Love uh, it. Good job. Love it.